0: You can't claim to love math yet fear math problems. And so, our goal is always trying to make problem lovers because we believe that if you're really afraid of the problems, probably not much that you could do.
1: Today, we're chatting with Leroy Mwasaru from Kenya about turning human waste into energy. I know this may sound unbelievable, but at just 16, Leroy started to address an issue in his community. He's an incredible young man who uses his engineering skills to problem solve sustainably. Without further ado, here's Leroy Musaru on Planet Reimagined. So Leroy, to quote you, it takes a village to raise a child. Likewise, it takes a child to raise a village. When I heard this, I absolutely loved it. What did you mean by it? I think my main uh,
0: point I wanted to pass across was what we contribute to society requires many more efforts save from the individualistic efforts. And then for for those efforts to even start, it it has to begin with one person. It still is a mantra (laughs) with the work I do uh, with the things I strongly believe in that it takes a village to raise a child. And likewise, it takes a child to raise a
1: village. Amazing. So today, we're going to talk about a couple of your projects. The one we're going to focus on first is using human and organic waste to produce biogas and fertilizer. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Because that's probably really complicated for some of the people that are listening.
0: (laughs) This was, I'd say, in a first principles approach. The whole system follows a biological concept known as anaerobic respiration. If you put an organic decaying material and then close it, what you'll get is CH4. The result of that living organism decaying, I guess they just are basically stomachs. And we've had even designs which are made to visualize that aesthetic of it being a stomach. Uh, and so we went a step further in trying to see how efficient could we make this process. How could we take advantage of the human waste that was being disposed? How could we take advantage of some low hanging fruits? You'd find that in high school because the food wasn't the best. So we threw the food quite frequently. And so the bins would be literally full at every lunch hour. So how could we take this waste, which probably ends up being thrown in some other place and then help farmers for even restaurants and make that useful waste for them. So if I say useful waste here, I mean fertilizer for the farmer, and I mean uh, biogas for the farmer and also the restaurant as well. Biogas is good for uh, cooking, lighting. So this could be a good application for schools, factories. What are the resources that we could find that could help us take this uh, head on? That was step one. And now, you know, into the field of learning.
1: So this idea first developed when you were in school, right? Yes. How old were you when you first had the idea? So I was at the age of 16 at grade 10. Can you walk us a little bit through the process? And when we say human waste, are we talking about what goes into the toilet? Shockingly, yes. It's also good to like
0: visualize the amount of waste. We had, we had pit lachins. And so for these pit latrines, there was no sustainable way of emptying this. So what happened is there was a big hole which was dug. When it's full, um, it's closed. Another hole is dug. So that was unsustainable for a school looking at the size that we were in, at least 1,200 students at that time. If I would speak to how the idea was actually conceived, going through the school compound and then... The couple of protests against the school. These protests were mainly because the school shares land with the local communities. What this meant is that this spring's water would contaminate what would be a domestic source of water for this community. So for me, this was something that you know I thought I had to solve for. I used to walk around with this notebook where I would brainstorm for different solutions, either with friends or most times I just do them alone.
1: So you walk into school and you see these protests happening because of this land that is shared with the community and the potential of contamination of the water. Why did you take it on as your responsibility to solve this? Aren't there other people in the community that are supposed to be you know, fixing these issues? How did it fall on your shoulders?
0: If if this problem was left unattended, it would only get worse, especially in that jurisdiction where this was you know, a public school, not a private school, so the speed at which this uh, problem would be solved wouldn't be a very fast speed as compared to a private school. This looks like a pretty big problem. Let's see how we could maybe solve it. And then we kept on going.
1: When you developed the first prototype, I saw that it actually exploded. What went through your mind when that happened? And did you ever want to give up at any point along the way?
0: (laughs) The first effort I did, we were met with the ridiculous. What we just ended up doing is, you know, confiding in our mentor at that time, who was Mr. Frederick Aguirre. So we confided in him and we only reported back to the administration later on when we did a better version of the gesture which had previously excluded. From the explosion, you know, going forward, it really taught us that the explosions are normal things which happen in a trajectory of uh, iterating when you're building systems that, you know, are for people or systems which you expect like build on.
1: Definitely. So from this innovation to Green Pact, how did you get from one to the other? This is something that could
0: literally be done at a much larger scale. This is a problem that's being faced by at least 9 million Kenyan households. And take into consideration that a typical household would have at least five people. So that's around 45 people at the basic minimum. So this was how big the problem was. And it felt like the natural thing to do immediately after high school.
1: So at the school level, it makes sense that the energy that was produced was used back in the school. But when you expanded this, how does the energy work with local grids or with a national grid or does it just connect back to individuals' houses? How, how, where does the energy run? This energy, its grid is
0: local, meaning that the waste that say, let's use a school, this example, for school the energy that they would get, say, from assuming a school has a school farm, assuming a school makes a typical high school meal, which isn't very attractive, and assuming the most basic thing that it has its students by itself. So the cycle that would take place here is that it gets the calorific content from the farm because the waste that comes from cows is a higher calorie than human waste. And so that's an important thing. Even as we're talking about human waste, you have a cow dung waste, which comes on the farm. And then we have also a high calorific feed, which is now food remains. And then we have now a human waste. What happens is that once that waste is digested, if it's a completely new tank, it would probably take around two weeks to, to get biogas. And then when you get this biogas, what happens is that you pipe discuss either to the kitchen or areas where you would need the cooking to be done or the lighting to be. And if it's in a school that, say, has maybe 2000 plus, because that makes economical sense to have electricity, because it has to pass through a generator to produce electric energy. That cycle now goes to the kitchen staff who gets to use it or the students who get to use it. And in a home would probably be the kitchen that you use if you're cutting up vegetables. What's waste is literally not waste. That goes back into uh, a digester, which is able to now power the same kitchen with biogas. The highest benefits are to institutions like schools, uh, say hospitals, because uh, typically these are institutions that would have their cooks use firewood. And so it would be a really big benefit, both socially on a health perspective as well to these valuable uh, members of the community who are cooks.
1: So you just mentioned social, health, obviously we're talking about energy. What are the costs associated with this? Is it more expensive or less expensive than connecting to a grid? Initial costs of having the system,
0: which are a little bit higher, which is a common characteristic of uh, green energy, is that although our systems range from around... $600 $600 to around, say, $2,000, what we really try and instill is that, you know, about the long term, but then the benefits really outweigh the initial cost of investment. Because if, let's say, you'd be paying maybe something like $100 uh, a month, that would, you know, outweigh the direct and indirect costs that you'd have, uh, firewood, electricity, you know, and with firewood, it's really much expensive, although it might not seems so at the front end because there's, you know, that health aspect because of battling with charcoal smoke, you get to have, uh, say, diseases like pneumonia.
1: How big is Green Pact now? How many institutions or even homes have incorporated your system? So we are currently at uh, around uh, about 56 installations. And
0: what, what we're really trying to do is, you know, uh, make this process much faster. We've learned quite a lot. For example, like now we uh, make biogas almost as easily, probably easier to access than LPG gas by compressing the biogas into cylinders where you're able to use them just as you would use an an LPG gas cylinder.
1: Can you just explain what LPG gasoline is? Um, LPG gas
0: cylinder is uh, basically fossil fuel, which is mostly, at least in Kenya, which is a main source of fuel. While cost of uh, having bi gas is significantly, significantly cheaper, we expect that we'd be in a fairly long fight with uh, with the LPG uh, because it's centuries old culture. Uh, yeah, so. What we want to do is package our gas into a liquid form. So we, once we compress it in a form that it's in liquid form and pressurized, we're able to now sell it off and uh, develop our own uh, hopefully better distribution network. We get uh, free learning from the errors that the LPG sector is making and hopefully you know, build a much better system.
1: Is anyone else copying you? It's sort of latterly,
0: uh when people are doing what we're doing. But still, not. Or I enough. guess,
1: are you copying anyone
0: else? <laughs> I'd say not enough people are, are copying us, and we hope that in the next two or three years we're able to make our patents open source, so that the coping is, you know, <laughs> much more effective, and so, so that they don't copy the wrong thing. But then uh, it's still a fairly young industry in Kenya, and uh, there's still a lot of work to be done, both at the regulatory level and also with the players who are in the who are in the industry as well. So currently we have a fairly ambiguous uh, regulations surrounding biogas in Kenya, and we hope that um, the more we are able to show what what we've been doing, um, that we'll be able to attract stakeholders who are in the legislature and you know draft guidelines which would favour uh, more uptake for biogas. We've had a recent finance bill which has meant that there's significantly more tax on renewable energy. We hope that we'll be able to show the real benefits for whatever we are doing. And hopefully the tax goes down because the real beneficiaries are the citizens
1: who are mostly bottom of the pyramid. Definitely. So I'm sure you know the UN has 17 sustainable development goals that they want to achieve by 2030. And Kenya also has Vision 2030. How do you feel like your project fits in and do you feel like Vision 2030 is going to be achieved? Are people actually working towards it? Is it going to be successful? Or does it feel like a dream right now? I'm incredibly optimistic about
0: uh, SDG7. With the advent of, you know, uh, solar companies, electric car companies, the biggest encouragement I think we can probably all learn, you know, is from Tesla's fight with the conventional car industry. Fights which have led us to this point where we're now seeing that, okay, yes, this is uh, probably the future and benefiting all of us. But then with SDG 7, quality education is what would be a particular uh, strong accelerate for this journey with the sustainable development goals.
1: So for anyone who doesn't know, SDG 7 is clean energy and SDG 4 is quality education. And one of the things we talk a lot about on the podcast is that sustainability is not just about switching away from single-use plastic or, you know, not using fossil fuels in your car. There are so many different pieces to sustainability and they're all connected and interrelated. You kind of talked a little bit about making that jump between energy and how education is such an important piece of it. Um, but you started another organization called Kambuni that's focused on the education piece of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? So,
0: buni in Swahili uh, means uh, to innovate. So, it's a, it's a verb in Swahili and so with Kamboni, our typical target would be 13 to 18 and 18 24 um years so we we're mainly driven an overarching mission that you can't claim to love math yet fear math problems. Uh, and so our goal is always trying to make problem lovers because we believe that to solve any kind of problem, you have to be immersed in it. And if you're, you know, really afraid of the problem, it's probably not much that you could do with what we're doing at Cambodia in the form of holiday boot camps is we try and uh, instill this, this aspect of, you know, leading by innovation or innovation as a key value of of what it means to be a leader. We've been doing this for now three years. And there's lots of lessons apart from the fact that, you know, teenagers are probably very cheeky, (laughs) but (laughs) it's been an eye opener. And for me, the personal appeal for me is that if I was 13 or 14, I would have really wanted for me to get that kind of education, that kind of mindset that you are best placed to solve the problem where the problem is greatest. Being able to do that, I'd say it's a form of exercise because you have to Exercise the brain. And so we try and do this through a five day bootcamp, and then we follow it up with our mentorship and, most importantly, financial support we get through our partners.
1: That's incredible. I, I can't imagine what the answer to this next question would be. But between Camp Booney and Green Pact, not that you have any time to do anything else, but what's next for you?
0: Um, I'd say the next step for me is with upscaling the kind of efforts that we are doing with Greenpacks in terms of volume manufacturing. And I'm really interested to see how me and the team take on this problem head on. I, of course, have my tech interests and, you know, from time to time, have my passion projects here and there. Tech in specific programming is basically a language that, you know, you can't just shy away from and a segue to solving for billions, literally.
1: So in a few of the video interviews that I've watched of you, you call yourself an introvert and all of the videos you're speaking publicly, you're sharing the ideas, everyone's loving what you're saying, you command the room. Do you ever see yourself running for public office?
0: <laughs> Currently, no. Um, maybe my answer might change in two or three years, which I welcome. But for now, i say no, I have no particular political aspirations. My reasoning behind it is I think I'm probably best placed to effect the kind of change that I want to see, say, tomorrow or in the future with the efforts that I'm leading both at Green Pact and Camboni. And About me being an introvert and still uh, being out there, I think my ideal would be one where I probably don't have to be the most eloquent in the room for people to, you know, actually appreciate what work I'm leading or the quality of the ideas. At the core of it, I really wish that you know, the work that I'm leading could be the biggest speaker for for all this that that I'm doing.
1: That's great, and and I think that's going to be really inspiring for people. I have one more question for you, and you know, I read that the school that you went to, a notable alumni was Barack Obama, senior. Is that correct? <laughs> true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So I'm pretty sure that there are going to be some more notable alumni, including yourself, as we see your kind of path and your, and your work grow. But there are so many kids around the world that see a problem in their community, but they don't know how to get started. So if you had any piece of advice for these people around the world that want to get involved and want to do something to help, what would it be? The advice I'd say, take it apart. And build it from
0: the first piece. For most of these problems, there's probably someone who had tried to solve it either, you know, a few years back or even a few days back. And with the advent of the internet, there's no particular excuse for you know not being able to do something. And by taking it apart, being able to see what what mistakes were done, what good things were done, you're able to pick up on those valuable pieces. And then by starting with one piece sticks on that ideology of being scrappy, the more you show that you're adding value, the more you're able to um, attract those resources which are able to, you know, um, help you amplify the work that you're doing. So that would be my specific advice to the young audience listening to this. That's the advice I wish uh, 13-year-old Leroy had.
1: Your work is incredible. Your advice is inspirational. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Leroy. Um it's a pleasure, Adam. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please visit Sustainable Partners org slash donate. Also, follow us on Instagram at sustainable.partners. Today's episode was engineered by Drew Alsbrook, produced and edited by Shelby Kaufman, and executive produced by Sustainable Partners Inc. I'm your host, Adam Met, and thanks for listening to Planet Reimagined.